Well, it's good to be here again, and uh, it was a couple of weeks. I'm losing. Who else, are you losing track of time? The whole COVID deal, just getting weeks merged into one, and all the rest of it seems to be more that way, or maybe it's just age. I don't know, but uh, certainly feels that way to me anyway. And uh, I'm going to be speaking on um, in your. In, you're going to John's Gospel at the minute. Hopefully, that's not a surprise if you've been coming for a while. If you are here for the first time or new to the Bible, we're looking at one of the biographies, if you like, of Jesus, um, stories about Jesus, and um, John's Gospel is incredible uh, deal. I mean, all the Gospels are, of course, uh, <laughs> um, but, but there's so much there in this the story of Jesus here in John's Gospel. So turn to chapter, or turn your phone on, or whatever you do to look at the Bible, um, to chapter 12. There we go, I'm on the right page now. Chapter 12 in your Bibles, and um, we're going to sort of walk through, just a little bit verse by verse, we're going to look at verses, um, chapter 12, verses 20 to 26, um, and uh, like I said, we'll just kind of walk through verse by verse, draw a few things out, and they'll hopefully be helpful to us. Just a little bit of context for it as well. Um, Jesus is coming into his final days, really, and in fact, as we come up into chapter 13, um, the, the, from chapter 13 onward is like a 24-hour period. You know, it's kind of loads is going on within that time. And so we're kind of ramping up, is it like, th- through the story to the sort of climax of the story. Um, and um, in verse 12 to 17, we read about Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. And um, people have seen him raise this Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's going to get you a little bit of attention, isn't it? If you've just done that, and um, so the tension is on Jesus. People are following Jesus because of this raising of the dead of Lazarus. And I realize that, you know, well, if you're a Christian, you're like, wow, hang on, that's pretty significant, isn't it? And if you're not a Christian here, you're like, well, how on earth does that happen? And come and chat afterwards. Um, but people heard what Jesus has done, and then they want to meet Jesus. And so some are really glad, actually. Some are sort of like, great, Jesus, we want to go and find out. And we're going to read about that in a minute, these Greeks who want to go and see Jesus, but Jesus also made some people really upset, didn't he? You know, and, and I love that about Jesus, actually, that, that he lived to please his father. He lived before an audience of one. That's a good principle in life. Live before an audience of one. You'll make some people really happy, but some people might not be, but you don't pander to people pleasing, yeah? Because that's not a great place to live. Please him. You'll please some people. And others will get upset. That's just what Jesus did. We don't go around upsetting people deliberately. But sometimes that happens even when, you, when you're trying to follow Jesus. And it certainly happened here. The Pharisees were not very happy that the world had gone after him because, well, they were, you know, they wanted the world to come after them, didn't they, probably? <laughs> Let's be real. And suddenly the attention is on this Jesus and they didn't like it. And it's good to have John the Baptist attitude in that sense when you're like, I'm glad everyone's going to Jesus. Actually, that's a really good thing, that people are leaving me and going to Jesus. Anyway, so we read in verse 20 then that you've got the Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus. You've got some people wanting to seek Jesus out. And we see these Greeks. It says there were some Greeks who were going up to worship at the feast. And this was the Passover feast, the festival. Um, if you know your Bible, you'll know that in terms of Exodus and the story there of God's bringing people out from a place of slavery. Basically, it's God's story of bringing us out of places that we can't get out of ourselves, that we need a greater power to enable. And we need that, don't we? It's help from the outside. 
And this is a story of how God rescued his people out from Egypt, out from under slavery, and the Passover supper when God passed over, where there's this judgment. Um, and, and that's huge. You know, there's this judgment on, on the firstborn of Egypt. And, um, but this, this blood that was painted over the doorposts and the lamb that was slaughtered as God passed over and saved and rescued and all these things point to Jesus. Um, so you've got some Greeks who are going up and they, 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 you know, maybe they were Jewish converts. Maybe they'd kind of, um, they were, um, had become followers, as it were, the Jewish way. Um, they represent, though, in this sense, those who are outside Israel, outside the Jewish nation. They kind of prefigure the coming of people to Christ who are not just Jews. And you, again, you see as you go through into the book of Acts and the story of the early church and the letters, you start to see this happening. It's not just about the Jewish people. It's for the world. And in fact, then when you read back into the Old Testament, you read it all over the place in Isaiah and places like that of, hey, this was always the intention. It was always the nations. It was always everyone. It was always the restoration and the opportunity for everyone from every tribe, every people group, the Greeks, the British, the Australians, and whoever else can come to know God through Jesus. This was the plan. This is what God has been working on. And you see it in Jesus as well, don't you, in the Gospels, when you've got like the Samaritan woman. And it's a beautiful story back in John chapter 4. You'd have covered that already. So anyway, these Greeks are coming to Jesus. And then verse 21 says, They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Now, why did they want to see Jesus? Why do you think they wanted to see Jesus? Heard about him, I guess. Maybe they were at the raising of Lazarus. Maybe they were with the crowd that were going into the, as Jesus was coming in, they saw people shouting out Hosanna and praising God. It's like, who is this guy? Maybe they've heard the stories about him, but they want to see him. And then and the second question I ask is this, is well, why do they go to Philip? And why does it say where Philip was from? Do you ever ask those questions when you read the Bible, kind of these little details? Why are they there? You know, why say it was Philip and he was from Bethsaida, from Galilee, of Galilee? Why is he saying that? Well, one possibility might be, if Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, talks about Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. And interestingly enough, well, I find it interesting anyway, there's only two disciples that had Greek names. And that was Philip and Andrew, who happened to be here. You've got Greeks going to them. And I don't want to read too much into this in terms of application, but just maybe, just maybe God uses us and our backgrounds and where we've come from that people might feel more comfortable to come to you than someone else because of who you are and because of where you've come from and because of what you've been through, that maybe some will come to you because of who you are and the way God has shaped you. Yeah? And maybe that's why they went to Andrew and Philip because they thought, okay, they've got Greek names. They come from Galilee. We'll go to them first. We'll have a chat with them. And that's really good news for us. In other words, we haven't got to try and be someone else. You know, that little phrase, isn't there? You know, what is it? You know, you know don't try and be someone else. You know, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Yeah, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. You, you can't be someone else. You simply can't. And God has made us with unique histories and backgrounds and where we're from that maybe people come to us and say, I'm looking for, I want to know what life is about, and ask you questions. So they came to Philip. 
And then it says in verse 22 and 23, Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if I was Philip and Andrew at that point, I'd be like, what? We've just asked you, can some Greek guys meet with you? And you've said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, have you heard what we've said? Isn't that fair enough to think that? If you ask someone a straight question, kind of, why are you not answering the question, Jesus? Now, obviously, there's more that is being said here through the scriptures. There's more that Jesus is saying here than just about meeting with a couple of Greeks. And Jesus kind of seizes this moment. And it is a moment, as we're going to see. It's a kind of key moment in the gospel story, in John's gospel, to give this key teaching. And he says this, the time has come or the hour has come. Well, if someone says that, well, you're gonna, what's the next question you ask? What hour? And what on earth do you mean by the time has come? Now, if you know that phrase, the hour has come, the time has come, maybe you've sort of, if you've been going through John's gospel, maybe remember back a little bit, back to chapter two, the wedding at Cana, when Jesus and his mum and the whole wine deal going on. And what does Jesus say to his mum? He says, mum, the what hasn't come? The hour hasn't come yet. Oh, right, okay. So you see these little threads through John's gospel kind of building up and building up. And then you go forward into chapter 7 and chapter 8. And John says it twice in those two chapters. He says that, that, that Jesus' hour has not yet come. It wasn't yet time. And I think what we're meant to do as we read through these stories is we're meant to start to say, ah, there's something building here. There's something that John is leading to. And then we hit this passage in chapter 12. Now it's come. Now is the time. Now is the hour, Jesus says. There's something significant that Jesus is about to say to his disciples. There's something significant about the story and it turning at this point. The time has now come. It wasn't before, but now it has. Well, what time has come is the next question. What time has come? Well, he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, look, the whole Son of Man thing, Daniel chapter 7, there's a whole thing there on the Son of Man. Jesus took this term, Old Testament term, that talked about this one who would come, um, talked about the Messiah, the rescuer, and so on and so forth. The Son of Man would come. And Jesus took this name on for himself. And I'd go back and read that maybe if you want to in Dan 7, not now, but have a look at that because that's, that explains who this Son of Man was. But interestingly, it says about this Son of Man that all the nations and people of every language would serve him. Okay, so now you've got Greeks coming. People of every language are coming to Jesus. Yeah? And so we start to see these links there as well with who Jesus is, the Son of Man. But what does it mean to be glorified? I mean, I don't know what you're like, but there are, there are sometimes words that we use. If you're, if you're a Christian, and we use these words, and sometimes I have to stop myself and think, what do I actually mean by that? And, and glory is one of those, or glorified is one of those. Blessed is another one. You know, I have to think about it and think, well, what does it actually mean? And so if someone were to stop you in the street and just say, hey, what does it mean to be glorified? What does glory mean? When we say we live for God's glory, what are we actually saying in that? And it's worth thinking about that, isn't it? I'm sure you have thought about it, but we're going to unpack it a little bit as well. And there's kind of two ways, I think, we think about glory. One is we say something is glorious. We say maybe a um, bit of furniture. Does anyone do furniture restoration here? It's not because I've got something need doing, but just 
Is anyone, anyone into that sort of thing? Take something old, an old car maybe, and make it into something new. And what do you say? You're restoring it to its former glory. There's something about the restoration of value of something, the worth of something, the magnificence of something when we talk about glory, yeah? And that's one of the ways we use the word. And when we talk about something being glorified, we're then saying, so you might say it's restoration of its old former glory, and then you might start saying, wow, what an amazing car. What an amazing, you know, you're then glorifying it, yeah? That's what you're doing in that sense. You're showing honor and praise for whatever it is. And that's what it's like in us in terms of God. And in the 2016 Olympics, I read one article of the um, British athletes and it had that little phrase in it. It said, they've covered themselves with glory. They've covered themselves with glory. Well, how? Is it because they lost? <laughs> no. It's because they, they won. It was success. They were victorious. They covered themselves in glory because of the way that they performed, the, what they'd done. It was glorious. It's interesting, this writer chose to use that language of glory, their achievements, their success, who they were, what they'd done. It was made visible to the world. Jesus, it says, is God's glory. He's the representation of God's glory. But it says that in John, we saw his glory. Back at the beginning of this gospel, John says, we saw his glory. And then Hebrews 1.3 says, he's the radiance of God's glory. And one way I found helpful to think about this in terms of God and Jesus being the representation of his, of, of his glory is like a cinema. Does anyone remember the cinema days where you went to the pictures and there was one picture on, because cinema, you know, one film on, younger people are going, what? One film? One film? And then you had this camera at the back and it streamed through, didn't it? This light shone through the cinema and you could, if you were being naughty, put your hands in it and things like that. And uh, it shone through. And, and in one sense, the light that's coming out of the camera, it's kind of like, it's the outshining. God's glory is the outshining of God's presence. And, and it's there. And you can look at the light and think, wow, that light's amazing. It's just, wow. But then you turn your head and you look at the screen. And as the light hits the screen, you get a beautiful picture. And suddenly that light takes on form. And in one sense, Jesus is like that, the outshining of God's glory in the flesh. Back in the beginning of John's gospel, the word became flesh, outshines from God, hits the screen of this world, and you start to see what God is like. Does that make sense? And you see the story of God in Jesus, his glory. That's what it's like. We, in Jesus, we see the beauty of God, the purity of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God most clearly displayed. Yeah? We saw his glory. But Jesus says to be glorified. Okay, so how did, where did John see Jesus' glory most clearly displayed? Well, actually, it's in the most unlikely of places. And when you read on in verse 24, we see actually it's in, it's in the cross. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wow. Okay, so here we start to see what Jesus was saying. And he uses this analogy that everyone would have got with wheat and a seed, and it has to go into the ground, it has to fall under the ground, it has to go into the dark, the lonely place, it has to die. But hey, 
If it does that, it's going to bear a shed load of fruit. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he's pointing to his death on the cross. He wants them to know, I guess, in those days between the cross and the resurrection, he wants them to know there's hope here. That actually this is what he'd been teaching them all along. That this is the deal, the way of the cross. And there Jesus is lonely. Why have you forsaken me? He breathed his last. He's buried on his own. But what looks like the grains as it falls to the ground and gets buried, the grain of wheat demise and its death is actually the start of the harvest, isn't it? That's what it is. It's the start of the harvest. And so it has to happen this way. And Jesus teaches his disciples this. And it's in the most unlikely place that that God's glory would get displayed and much fruit would come from it. People from every tribe, from every tongue, from every time. The son of man, going back to that. It's all linked. Much fruit would come from him. People from Norwich and Lowestoft were part of this fruit that Jesus spoke about. But the grain of wheat had to fall to the ground and die. Jesus is saying through his death on the cross, global fruit would come in people's lives. Something that looks like defeat, but actually it's victory. It looks like foolishness, doesn't it? The cross. I like it that the Bible says that about the cross, actually. It's foolishness. Because sometimes you look at it in, in, in worldly wisdom and, and just kind of look at it. What? How, how does that make sense? And Paul says it, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians. It's foolish. But actually it's God's wisdom on display. And the cross looks like the end, doesn't it? But it's actually the beginning. And his finish is our start. I love that. The Christian, when you put faith in Jesus, I haven't got to do anything. It's his finish is my beginning. He's genuinely done it all. It genuinely is all of grace. That's the deal, isn't it? That's where we live out from. So truly, truly, a grain of wheat falls to the ground. So Jesus does this. He bears fruit through his life. He's the first fruits. But then... What about those that follow him? What does this mean for those that are Christians, those that are disciples of Jesus? What does it mean for you and me? If you're a Christian, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 25 and 26. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. And goes on to say, the one who serves me must follow me and he'll be with me where I'm at and my father will honor him. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to sort of lose your life in this world, to hate your life in this world? What does it mean to be a disciple, to be like Jesus? That's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? To be like Jesus. Okay, well, what does that mean in this sense? If we're a grain of wheat and Jesus has done that for us, but actually we follow his ways. And Jesus said, didn't he, if you're my disciple, in fact, if anyone would come after me, what have they got to do? Three things Jesus says, what have they got to do? If anyone would come after me, they've got to do what? One, deny themselves. Two, take up your cross. Three, follow. All right. What did taking up your cross mean in those days? Someone took up their cross. Where are they on their way to? Yeah, not pretty. It's death. That's where they're on the way to. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, they knew what he meant. They were like, ah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a prelude to something. And so Jesus calls us to follow in the same way as him. And that way is to take up our cross. 
and follow him. And so what does that look like in contrast to kind of the world here? Because you hate your life in this world. Well, what does that look like? Am I going to hate myself? No. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not meant, don't hate yourself in that way. But it is hate those things in your life that are opposed to God's ways, those things that would destroy you and your friends and people around you. Absolutely. We hate those things. Why? Because they destroy lives. And so there's a contrast here between the world and following Jesus and his ways of this seed that goes into the ground. And I just want to do a contrast a few things of what the world says. And I realize I'm generalizing with the world here, all right? I'm not saying that everybody literally in the world thinks this, but generally speaking, the world says, do what feels good. The cross says, do what is good. And if we do what is good, it isn't always going to feel good. Yeah? Sometimes doing the right thing is the hardest thing and sometimes the most painful thing and a costly thing. So the world says, feels good. Jesus says, and the cross says, do what is good. The world says, take revenge. And the cross says, extend forgiveness. And Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's not even seeking them to have understanding of what they've done. And that's challenging, isn't it? When we're called to forgive people, and all of us will have been through this, we're going through this in different ways. But that's the way of the cross. We extend forgiveness. The world says, cover up your wrongdoing. Kind of hide it, minimize it, keep it hidden. And the cross says, actually, just, just be exposed, as it were. What you've done, fully revealed. And it's really important that we're in relationships with other people, that we can be brutally honest with really what's going on in our lives and the things that we're carrying and the things that we're dealing with. Really important that we've got. I love a little phrase I picked up. I may have said it last time. We need people close enough to say it and cl close enough to see it and close enough to say it if they see things in us. But also we need people close enough to us that we feel safe enough to say it ourselves. That we can really say, this is how I'm, what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm actually really struggling with at the moment. The world says, go with the flow. The cross says, stand your ground, even in the face of opposition and persecution. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? The world says, it's important to be socially accepted, to be in with the in crowd. I mean, who wants to be out? Who wants to be on the wrong side of history? I can't bear that phrase, but that's a whole other story. You know, but seriously, who wants to be out? Well, actually, but the Jesus said, sometimes you're going to be out of kilter with the world and people will reject you and mock you if you follow me. That's, that's going to happen at times. And the world says, sometimes take care of number one. And the cross says, seek the good of others, even at great cost to yourself. That's what sacrificial love looks like, isn't it? And a little bit of you dies every time you live like this, really. But it's not a sad, it's not a kind of, you lose your life in it. Oh, I've lost that. It, when you, even when you give your life to serve others, you're giving up your time. You're losing. You're dying to some of the time that you might want to spend on yourself for the sake of another. And you might think, oh, but I'm losing in that. And actually, no, you're winning because it's more blessed to give than receive. And actually, living Jesus' way that seems so contrary to so many other things, actually, it works. And it's life-giving. And there is life there. That's what Jesus promises. A grain of wheat falls to the ground. You'll bear much fruit in your life. But it's going to be costly. It is going to be costly. And it's going to require these kind of little deaths, as it were, each day. 
in different settings and different circumstances, whether that's at home, in our families, or at work, or with our neighbors or friends. And there'll be these little deaths that take place as we follow Jesus. But it's the place that leads to life and to joy and to fruitfulness in the Holy Spirit, yes? That's the deal. But we take up our cross, we deny ourselves, and we follow him into it. And we trust God then that he is going to bear fruit through our lives as we do that. He'll do it individually. He'll do it in our families. And he'll do it together as a church as well. As you continue just to follow Jesus. As we follow Jesus together. Much fruit. He said it. Do you believe that? Yeah, I do. I'm going to take Jesus' words above everything else. And that's our hope. That's the place for our hope, isn't it?